How many are familiar with that phrase, sex sells? You've heard that? Ah, yeah, 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 sure, no. And, uh, you know, advertisers put an image in and then they think that they, they use that so people buy more of their stuff. And it doesn't matter if it's a car or a mortgage, somehow they, in, you know, just kind of import that. And on the flip side, on the flip side of that, society is trying to protect um, people or protect sexual identity, protect people from things like sexual abuse. And I find it interesting that on one side, we sell our sexual souls, and on the other side, we protect them. Isn't that interesting? We, it's, it's kind of confusing in our culture to see that, especially uh, when money's involved. A couple of weeks ago in our series called Image Bearers, we talked about the, the vocation of marriage and singleness. And it was an important series, important part of our series anyways. And um, what, was, what was really important, I think, for many people, I, heard, I, heard, I got emails and phone calls and chatted with a few people of how important it was to just pause and, and talk about um, what it means to, to be purposeful even in things like in singleness. And so I really appreciated hearing from people. When we talk about the vocation, though, whether it's marriage or singleness, it begs the question, like, where does sexuality fit into that? And obviously, for someone who's married, maybe it's an obvious piece. For someone who's single, there's, there's part of the fact that we are all created as sexual beings. And today, we're going to talk about sexuality. We also want to talk about it. Maybe you've you know, you read my email this week. This week. I want to um, also address some questions people have around same-sex relationships. And the purpose of today, in no means, you know, because if this is the first time you've come here today, you're like, wow, this, you guys always talk about hot topics. We're actually not a hot topic type of church. Um, the, the, you know, we, we kind of like simply go through the scriptures and, and try and follow Jesus and point people to Jesus and, and uh, learn how to love like Jesus. That's our heartbeat. But, uh, you know, just, just trying to address some questions that people have. Today we want to talk about this particular issue. And it's not, this is important to understand, it's not to draw a line in the sand anywhere in terms of, of uh, culture and the church. It's not even to, to, to address, say, oh, this is what we're for or this is what we're, we're against. There's been so much pain over the years where the church has been known for what they're against and not what they're for. That is so sad that people don't know what the church is for. They're often more aware of what they're against. And so this message does not fit into that drawing in the, land, in the, in the sand type of thought. And as I've been thinking about this over the last few weeks, I've come across stories and just reminders of friends and others, just sometimes the pain and hurt and misunderstanding and just a variety of opinions that come around the topic of sexuality. So we're going to try kind of two weeks, and I'm giving you a heads up. One of the weeks will probably like ruffle um, people who feel more liberal, and one of the weeks will ruffle people who feel more conservative, all right? So my goal is to make everybody mad over the next two weeks, okay? So that, that's the goal. But th- this fits into our current series called Image Bearers. We've been learning and understanding that every person we lock eyes with matters to God. Every person we lock eyes with is created in the image of God, in the image of his likeness. And if this is true, then God is fully aware of our sexuality. He's created us as sexual beings. And I want to start with this phrase on the screen, and it's this, that there's beauty and brokenness in our sexuality. Now, regardless if you have a faith background or not, regardless if you feel religious or not, I think all of us would say this is true, that there's beauty 
and there's brokenness in our sexuality. That no matter who you are, where you're from, conservative or liberal, uh, Christian or not, that we would say there's some truth to that statement. In fact, if you, you know, drive on, on, uh, take, if you're driving on Monday nights, tons of people tune in to CJD. What's on CJD on Monday nights? Say your name. Delilah? Is no, you know, the Delilah show? No? Okay. Whatever. Anyways, it's popular for a reason. She's been on forever. People ask all these questions about sexuality and relationships and things like that. So I want to start with this. There's beauty and there's brokenness in our sexuality. I think that's true uh, to our own experience. I want to start off with just briefly describing these two things and then going further. As image bearers, we're sexual beings. There's beauty in that. There's beauty in that. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we discover that our status as image bearers, God has created us both male and female. If you kind of go to the text, uh, just the next text, we read this a couple of weeks back. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Just by saying that, just by describing that of who we are, it demonstrates that sexuality is part of who we are. And we can't get around that. That's just important. We, as we go further in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we, we read about uh, the oneness, the unity that happens between a husband and a wife, the, the multiplication that the scripture says will take place um, on planet earth through people. That's part of our sexuality. Before sin, though, think about this, as we read the story of scripture, scripture before brokenness sets into humanity, we read that Adam and Eve are naked and unashamed. Now, that's not necessarily a sexual comment, but it's just a reality that there was a joyful contentment in their body, in their unique characteristics as male or female. And I find it interesting. We live in kind of a sex-crazed beauty contest culture, photoshopped kind of world, right? And that's a lot of words to put into adjectives, but that's true. Yet there's a protest movement going on, and you've seen viral videos going on where people say, hey, this is who I am. I don't look fit, I don't look this, but this is who I am. And there's this protest movement going on that says, though we live in this kind of culture, hey, this is who I am. This is how I've been created. There's beauty in that. And so I, th- I think that's a really good thing, actually. So there's a sense that there's a, there's a beauty in sexuality. There's actually a book in the Bible called Song of Solomon that just the whole book is about a man and a woman discovering themselves intimately, physically. Um, there's, a, there's a, an author by the name of Deborah Hirsch. She wrote a book called Redeeming Sex, and she writes this. She says, Sexuality can be described as the deep desire and longing that drives us beyond ourselves in an attempt to connect with, to understand that which is other than ourselves. She also says this in her book, Fortunately, wonderfully, our sexuality forever points us toward our Creator especially when expressed in healthy, right ways, but even in its brokenness, because this is when we become acutely aware of a deeper longing. As she she explores her own life and the scriptures, she, she tries to help us see a beautiful side of our sexuality. Philip Yancey writes this. She quoted him. She says, Uptight Christians forget the fundamental fact that God created sex. Um, when I was a teenager, my, uh, my, my brother, sister, and a friend of ours, my mom, we went to Plattsburgh for the day, kind of a Montreal thing to do. I rarely, I never do it now, but we did it back then once or twice. And we were in a pharmacy, and my friend and I thought, we're going to freak my mother out. This 
is, we're like a Christian home. My mother's a Christian lady. My dad was a pastor at the time. So she's like, you know, pick up things that you want, guys, gum, chocolate, whatever. So my friend and I go to the back and we pick up a box of condoms and we slipped it into stuff. Here, mom, pay for this. Here's my mother. She's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, we're laughing, right? And, and that's kind of the whole sense, like, that's the sense, that awkwardness. Somebody didn't know if you should laugh or feel bad. I get it. Um, <laughs> So, so there was, there was this, just this moment, right? What do we do with that? But the truth is, there's a beauty in sexuality. But it's not always beautiful. Because many people have experienced brokenness. And as we've seen the brokenness in our world caused by what the scripture calls sin, many have experienced brokenness. Deborah Hirsch says this, our sexuality is indeed a powerful force. It can lead us to something of an experience of either heaven or hell, depending on our ability to orient it toward God or not. Think about the teenage girl who thinks that by giving herself, she's anticipating, I'm going to give myself to my boyfriend and this is going to make our relationship great and he's going to appreciate me more and this is going to be awesome to find out a day or two later, weeks later, I don't feel what I thought I would feel. And he doesn't treat me the same way. And, and discovering that. Um, a man who finds out that his spouse, his wife, cheated on him, or a woman who was sexually harassed at work or in in other ways. We recognize there's brokenness of sexuality in our culture. Andy Stanley in a message shared some questions. I'm not going to answer them, but just think about this for a second. Think about this. Why does sexual abuse wound deeper than physical abuse? Why is rape worse than getting beat up? Why does porn addiction affect relationships? Why are some of the greatest regrets that people have often associated to sexuality? We don't have to answer the questions, but just by asking them, we understand that there's often brokenness in sexuality. It's interesting, the word in Hebrew, to know, which we use for to come to know God, it's the word yada. And, it, and it, it, the, the, the Hebrew scriptures uses that word to come to know God. Interestingly enough, they use the same word when they talk about two people coming together intimately, sexually. The same word, to know, to come to know. And that's because there's an intimacy involved in that word. And the beauty of sexuality is partly, at least in the act, not all of our sexuality, but in the physical act, there is intimacy. But yet there's brokenness of sexuality when the intimacy is betrayed. As there's a deep knowing that takes place in that. Andy Stanley says this, he says, sex is not just physical. Boy, if we could all figure that out, that would be so important. That sex is not just physical. And it leads us to ask this question or to consider if there's beauty in sex and there's brokenness in sex, it leads us to talk about the boundaries in sex that, that, or in sexuality that in the scriptures, and I'd say our Heavenly Father has given us boundaries within sexuality. And the boundaries exist, and I, and, I, and I wrote it this way, and I want us to think about this, and maybe you want to write this down or think about it later. Boundaries exist to champion the beauty and to curb the brokenness. The boundaries exist to champion the beauty and to curb the brokenness. 
Now, think about these boundaries for a moment. I mean, traditionally, many of you already know, even if you've just come for the first time, you're thinking, well, I, I figure what a church might say about the boundaries of sexuality. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes these words, and, and he's trying to teach this group of Christians, these people who've come to faith, they're in a Roman Greek culture, and in that time, the first century was, a, I would say, a very kind of sexualized uh, culture. Sometimes we say, oh my goodness, what's our culture coming to? And you might say that, and that's fine. Go check out an exhibit of the first century. Go to a, go to a museum and, and, and look at the stuff that was happening in the first century, and you'll get a sense that when Paul is seeing people come to faith in a city like Corinth, they're coming to faith, they're discovering Jesus, but they're coming with all their sexual baggage, they're coming with all their sexual practices, they're coming in loving Jesus, discovering Jesus, but also not aware that, that maybe there's a better way. And Paul uh, writes to them, and here's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says this, and I love how he says it, do you not know, he's just kind of asking them, like, don't you guys know, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Now just pause for a second, because in that culture, there were temples, even religious and cultic temples, that had prostitutes, temple prostitutes. And obviously prostitution was around at the time as well. And Paul's trying to say, don't you realize that it's not just physical when you engage in this? Don't you know? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. And then he says this, don't, do you not know that he who, and he uses this word, unites, again, he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in her body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. Paul uses that word unite, this sense of intimate union. Don't you know there's a union that takes place in physical sex? Where does he get that from? He gets it from creation. As we've been looking at the creation story in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, he gets it from creation. And if we just look at something that we read from Genesis chapter 2 verse 24, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is, what's the word? United with his wife. And they become one flesh. Paul is looking back at this story and he's informed by it. He's looking at the people around him and trying to help them discern their, their decisions in life. And he says, don't you know that the physical act of sex is a union? There's a union that takes place. There's a oneness that happens. And interestingly, Paul and Jesus, both when they speak about marriage in the scriptures, they go back to this text and they quote it. A few times, not just once. So Paul reaches back to Genesis 2 as he, he informs them, this church, these people, saying, don't you realize there's some boundaries here to describe the unique union that happens sexually. And so here's this one key boundary we see in the scriptures. And it's in, within sexuality, at least physical sex. And I say physical sex because I think we are aware that as sexual beings, there's other parts of our sexuality, in a sense, how we relate to people, how we connect with one another, the joy of, of conversation with men or women. There's just part of that of who we are. But this at least physical act of sex what we see in the scriptures is reserved for a husband and a wife. And we read it in Genesis chapter 2. We read it throughout the scriptures. It's this theme. And Jesus and Paul bring it into their understanding when they talk about marriage, when they talk about divorce, when they talk about things like that. But see, it's hard, right? In our culture, culture has a different answer, right? Culture's answer is possibly like, 
practice makes perfect. <laughs> you ever hear that phrase? You got, you know, and I've, I've, been, I've been reading articles actually on this uh, lately, just like even prepping for this series. And there's so much of, of the internet chatter and the conversations is like, hey, you got to practice to make perfect, kind of be ready for what happens. And, you know, you don't know what's going to happen if you can't figure this out. And, and I was thinking about this, like sex, at least the physical act of sex is not like learning an instrument. My daughter, Julia, she's learning how to play the clarinet. Okay, so she's figuring this out and she's, she's just playing a note here and there. She's learning her scales. She's not going to be fluid. She's not going to play tons of scales. She's not going to play a full song right away. She has to practice to make perfect. But I bet you if you put two people in a room for the purpose of physical sexuality, they don't need an instruction manual, right? right? You, they just kind of figure it out. And so this, this idea in culture like practice makes perfect is a little bit of a myth. And, and also that that we've said sex isn't only physical, but one of the messages in culture is that sex can only be physical. That's some of the messages that we get. That, that there's a greater fulfillment, that there's, that there's greater enjoyment um, in that. It's not just, it's, 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 okay. it's only physical. It's not, I'm not going to get caught up emotionally. It's not going to affect me. It's not going to hurt me. It's not going to affect anybody else. So that we get this sense of this boundary within the scriptures around this. And then the harder question comes around in our culture specifically, but in general. Well, does the Bible leave room for same-sex relationships? Because if we read this theme throughout scriptures, and this is a, a very complex and difficult topic, but if we see this theme throughout scriptures, the beauty, the brokenness, we see some of the boundaries, the hard question comes around is like, well, is there room within the scriptures for same-sex relationships or, or marriage. There's uh, a biblical scholar by the name of Richard Hayes, and he had a, a really good friend for 20 years. His name was Gary. Gary uh, identified himself as gay, and uh, he became a Christian. He loved the Lord, uh, and he had an intellectual rigor when he came to studying the Scriptures. He just loved to study the Scriptures, Gary. And his friend uh, Richard Hayes was a biblical scholar. In the 90s, Gary died of AIDS. He was a celibate Christian who identified as gay. And as he was leading up in sickness, him and his friends, including Richard, got together. And, and, and uh, Gary said, I, wanna, I really want to discuss sexuality with you guys as I'm even coming to the end of my life. Because he was so determined to get a sense of what the scripture said about it. And you read Gary's story, and it's amazing because he, he states in his story that he did his best as a Christian who identified as gay to read from gay Christian scholars why he should um, pursue a lifestyle that, that was open to same-sex relationships. And he said, as he was looking and reading and studying, he said to his friends, he says, I've read all this stuff, and I've gone back to the scriptures, and even in my own nature, I can't with intellectual integrity pursue what these books are saying. And so they talked together and they made an agreement. They said, you know what, you write your story and, and I'll help you with the biblical analysis and we're going to write an essay about this. But Gary died before it could ever happen. So Richard Hayes took up the mantle of that. And in one of his books on, on New Testament ethics, he wrote a whole chapter on homosexuality dedicated to his friend Gary. And the point of this is this, is that we're called to search the scriptures honestly. Just look at the scriptures honestly. And what I mean by that is, do the scriptures affirm or don't affirm same-sex relationships? That's really the question. To bring it down to the simplest form, 
Do the scriptures affirm or not affirm consensual same-sex relationships? And I'm going to say that word a lot, consensual same-sex relationships. You know why? Because we're not looking at a, a perverted idea of sex, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual. We're not looking at that. We're, we're not referring also to the attraction that someone has to someone of the same sex, but we're talking about marriage and same-sex activity. We're also not referring to perverse activity because, to be quite honest, if you read honest, sincere books from Christians who love Jesus but identify as gay, they will, they will always say that's a boundary for us too. The perversion, the extreme, the exploitive, that's a boundary for us too. They will say that. So we're not talking about that. We're asking, is there a boundary that inhibits same-sex relationships? And we're going to talk, go a little bit more into this next, next week as well when we talk about how we live this out together as a community. But just ask, answering the question, I want to ask this. Think about creation itself. And that's one way that we can just start informing ourselves. The first time God's image is said to be reflected, it's in male and female. We don't read it in all the other pieces of creation, but in male and female, God's image, God's likeness is reflected. That's not enough to make the case to even answer our question. But when we consider the progression of creation, think about this. The heavens and the earth are created. The light and the darkness. The land and the sea. The earth and the sky. Every day of creation includes a complementary kind of union that comes together. And when we read on the sixth day that God creates human beings, it's, it seems like the climax of this complementary type of creation where God, God brings together male and female that reflects this complementary expression of male and female. And even when we read part of the creation story, when Adam finds a suitable helper, he recognizes both similarity and difference. Similarity like we are human beings together, but difference. There's a difference. In other words, she's exactly like him, but she's not. She's exactly like him, but she's different. They're equal in value. There's no hierarchy there. There's a, they're both image bearers. They're both human beings. They're both God's creations, but there's a difference. And so through the progression of creation, we see this kind of complementary design that God has. So marriage has this complementary na- nature this complementary union where two equal humans with complementary genders come together. And so we see this in the scriptures. There's other parts of the scriptures that, that describe this a little bit, and, and uh, I want to read it for you. And it just, just honestly, now, here, this is interesting. There's only six, including two in Leviticus, that actually six texts that talk about same-sex relationships. Only six. Just to put ourselves with the proper posture. There's 2,000 references to the abuse of wealth. There's several hundreds and thousands of references to serving the poor. Um, We got to figure that out when we, when some Christians say, oh, we want to, we want to talk about this issue so much when the scriptures have so much more to say in other ways that we follow Jesus. But if we want to be honest, we want to at least say, hey, there's six parts of the scriptures that talk about this. And two particularly in Leviticus 18 and 20, and then we're going to look at Romans. These are just two that we read here. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. 
that is detestable. If a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. We find this in the, in the, in the Old Testament scriptures. Now, here's the argument. One of the arguments is, hey, didn't Jesus fulfill Leviticus? Didn't Jesus, like, say that, like, you know, you can still, you can eat what you want, right? You, like, because Leviticus has a lot of dietary rules. Um, you can, you know, don't worry so much about washing your hands. It's what comes out of your body, not, not what goes in your body that makes you unclean. Doesn't Jesus talk about how Leviticus is fulfilled? And I'd say, yes, he does. And no, he doesn't at the same time. Yes, he does. He, Jesus fulfills the purity laws of the Old Testament. There, we're not made clean by what we touch or do. We're made clean through the cross of Jesus Christ. He, Jesus fulfills um, the, the moral part of the, some of the mor- some of the moral aspects, or some of the at least punishments that we see. And this is one beautiful example that in the Old Testament, even in Leviticus, it would say that someone who committed adultery would be stoned. But Jesus, when he sees a woman who's caught in, the, in, in adultery, he tells the religious leaders, "Whichever of you has no sin in your heart, cast the first stone," and they all walk away. So Jesus fulfills what kind of punishment or retribution comes to sin. But what's interesting here is when we consider everything in Leviticus 18 and 19 and 20, I'm just going to put a list up uh, on the screen. These are some of the things we find in these three chapters. It's like a little section in the book of, of ethics, incest, adultery, child sacrifice, bestiality, theft, lying, taking the Lord's name in vain, oppressing your neighbor, cursing the deaf, showing partiality in a court of law, slander, hating your brother, making your daughter a prostitute. Okay, would, just, just curious, would any of you dismiss any of these boundaries? Would any of you say, I think number three is okay. Number seven would do. I, almost everything we read here, we'd say, well, we wouldn't, want to, we wouldn't want that to happen to me or someone I know or a friend or a family member. And, and here's, here's the thing, that within this list, within Leviticus 18, 19, and 20, there's some, somewhat of a moral values that are being set out that almost seem to have continuity. And here's the real cool thing. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, right in the middle of it, we read this verse. Love your neighbor as yourself. I don't think anybody would want to dismiss that. Jesus quotes this when he's asked in the New Testament, he's asked by, by religious leaders, hey, what's your, what's your take on the law and the prophets? How would you sum all the law and the prophets up? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So there's something here. What I would say is the point is this. Some parts of Leviticus are fulfilled by Jesus, and some we still consider valuable. So just, just to keep that in mind. But I want to take us to the New Testament because Paul gives us a short teaching here that we just need to look honestly, really honestly. The point is to look at this openly. It's Romans chapter 21, verse 24 to 27. Therefore, God gave them over, talking about everybody, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Then he continues. He says, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts, and he just has an example here. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men. Here's the first thing. The gut reaction that most, most of us will say, hey, this was like 2,000 years ago. Things are different. We've heard the phrase, like it's 2016, right? Um, things are different, but 
A couple of things to think about as we just kind of look at this and really to try and be honest. One, there's a creation echo in here. Paul's leaning on Genesis 1 and 2. He talks about the creator. He Earlier, we didn't read it, but he talks about God creating all things. Paul's leaning on his understanding of creation when he writes this to the Roman church. And he's trying to wrap his mind around this. As he writes this, he's, he's trying to describe this detour away from God's creation. An example, though, here's the thing. All he does is he just gives an example of this detour. I don't believe Paul in any way wanted to just isolate same-sex relationships because he lists a whole bunch of other things further down uh, the chapter. But I think his purpose is how have we detoured from God's plan? He lists a longer list, but then he says there's all kinds of ways this has happened that you and I included have detoured away from God's creative plan. But here's an example that he gives, and he, and he writes these two. Women exchange natural relations for unnatural ones. And men also abandoned, I think I have it here, and in the same way men also abandoned the natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. So just pause here to ask this question. Here's the big question. Is Paul ref- referring to consensual same-sex relationships? Or is he referring to something more perverse? Because it's very possible that he's only referring to perverse sexual activity, not um, broad, not a broader sense. And when I say that, I mean exploitive, extreme, rape culture, pederastry, where an older male takes a younger male. And this is one of the arguments that um, the gay Christian community, and I say that with all sincerity because I think they're, they're, they're longing to follow Jesus but one of the things that they look at when they look at this verse, they will say, well, Paul didn't have a context for healthy same-sex relationships. He had no idea what it was. Didn't exist in that time. Therefore, it had to have been only exploitative, not broader. But I want us to consider just some honesty with the Scripture. Paul lived in a time period where consensual same-sex relationships actually occurred. And here are two, two reasons why I would think that, Okay. Um, one, in the 4th century, Aristotle already talked about consensual same-sex relationships. In the 5th century, sorry, 4th century BC, 5th century BC, this is four or 500 years before Paul, another philosopher, uh, Peronids, he ended up talking about this as well. In 1st century AD, Rome, Greek world, where Paul was a part of, this was understood that there were consensual same-sex relationships. And so it's hard to say when we read this that Paul had no clue that this is possible, that he only had exploitative, perverse ideas. Historians from the time, Philio and Josephus, used the same words that Paul, if you can put that up again, used the same words that Paul used, the word natural, exchange natural relationships, unnatural ones. They used the same word in the same way that Paul used it when they were writing about similar situations. So that's something just to consider when we think about this text. Another thing is, and I think this is really helpful, when Paul includes women here, this is really important. When Paul includes women exchanging natural sexual relationships with unnatural ones, this is important because it was very rare, if not almost impossible to find, an exploitative woman-to-woman sexual relationship. It happened with men. 
Men, often, because of the power they had in that time period, took people that were lower in them in the power grid, and there was activity there among the same sex. There was a rape culture that was around then, but happened with men. And so for this, for Paul to say this about women, it, it just makes us at least pause and say, hey, wait a second. If, if Paul said this about women, he must be talking consensual. He can't be talking or he's probably not talking exploitative. So the point is this. Paul has this broad view, I think, of same-sex relationships here. Not a perverse view only. I think he believes that the mere act of sex among the same gender, I think he has that in view. That there's a boundary there, not the cross. And I think that's important for us to understand. If we're just going to be honest with the Scriptures... Again, I, today, my heart is not to draw this line in the sand, not to say, we're this or we're that. In fact, I love some of the language that's coming out, and I would totally affirm this language. People, are, people would say this, and I would say, there's, this is not an us versus them dialogue. It's all us. We're all us. We're all image bearers. We're all created by God. We need to understand the difficulty that goes on um, in, in, in some of the struggles in people's lives and some of the honest wrestling when someone wants to follow Jesus but is trying to figure out what the scriptures say. So let me kind of summarize this and then give you some closing thoughts. And um, man, I'm just thinking here, some of the people that have come today for the first time are like, I tell you, we don't always kind of get this intense, okay? <laughs> please ask somebody that you've come with or someone on your way out. Is that true? Did Dave lie there? And they'll tell you. you One of my top strengths in in StrengthsFinder is Harmony and Connector. I'm a harmonizer and a connector. I'm not a conflict starter. So, so, um, but here, let's summarize this. Both men and women are created in God's image. We know this from the creation story. Everyone is valued in God's eyes. Every person you and I lock eyes with matter to God. Heterosexual, homosexual. There is no distinction in that. Everyone is valued, is loved by God. Sexuality, we've discovered, is rooted in God's image. Sexuality is beautiful, but many have experienced brokenness as a result of sin. We've seen that. We know that. Some of us have experienced it more deeply than others. We've seen in Scripture God does give us boundaries. Does give us boundaries. Both heterosexual boundaries and homosexual boundaries. And I say that, that very equally because every person, if, they're, if, they're, if they, if they want to follow Jesus, even if it's not in this issue, has to just be honest and say, Jesus, am I going to call you Lord? Are you going to lead my life? Am I going to trust you? Because our, our goal is not to create some type of conflict with what's going on in culture and what's going on in the church. We're going to talk about that next week because politics and the state and the government, that's something they're doing to try and bring stability in our world. And we, we, we are called to be the church. We're just called to be the church. We're called to love Jesus. We're called to be the community of Jesus followers. We're not called to be the state. So we're going to look at that next week a little bit. But God has given us boundaries. And I would say this, for, with heterosexuals, we talked about this, within a union between a husband and a wife, homosexual, we don't see the scriptures affirming this. Man, I wish we could do this with a six-hour kind of conference. And Joseph and Shannon did a great job chatting with our youth uh, a couple of months ago, and they did an amazing job setting up this, this workshop that gave you know, youth a chance to dialogue over this. We don't have that uh, a chance today. But 
Let me, let me, now, so we've said all this, and I'm going to leave you hanging. Do you mind if I leave you hanging? Mind I just let it sit with you? Because honestly, this week, what the goal was is like, how do we honestly pursue the scriptures? How do we try like Gary did? Gary, the man who was a believer in Jesus, identified as gay, says, I want to look at the scriptures with, with intellectual integrity. We want to do what he does. That's, that's what we're trying to do today. Um, but the reality is this. We're the people of Jesus. And Jesus has called us to live like him and love like him. And so when we see truth in scripture, we never use truth. Can I tell you, I'm going to say this word, and I, I hope you never use it in your vocabulary regarding any topic like this. We never use scripture as ammunition. Never. It's never meant that way. In fact, some people will use some of these texts in, in, in such horrible ways to be demeaning. And I would say, no, that's not what we're called to do. We're called to let the scriptures inform our decisions, our understanding. But I'm going to leave you hanging because next week we're going to go into some, some questions around like, hey, what are we learning from one another? What are we learning from same-sex community, same-sex friends? And, and let me throw this verse up before we close and I want to have some closing thoughts. We read what Paul wrote in Romans 1, right? And if you read Romans 1, it's a real strong introduction to Romans. Look what he says when he jumps into chapter 2. And I want all of us to read this to ourselves. To ourselves. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Paul has come in strong in chapter 1 leaning on creation and showing how we've diverted and detoured from creation. And then it's so amazing how he points people in this direction and says, listen, this is the case. Don't just look at other people. How have you detoured from God's creative work in you? How have you detoured? And so I want us to sit with that this week and ask the Lord to speak to us and help us understand what, what, what's, what's, where do I pass judgment on others where I'm passing judgment on my intentions, but my actions would maybe judge myself. Where, where, where's that for us? Where's God getting our attention? So we'll leave you hanging with that. Let me tell you a story and then wrap this up with, with two, three really brief thoughts. Andrew Marin, he described himself, in this are his words, a Bible-thumping homophobe. He grew up strongly conservative Christian. He used the words gay and fag very loosely among his friends and in his culture. And not always in nice ways. But he didn't know a single person who was gay or lesbian or the broader LGBT community. In one summer, three consecutive months in a row, three of his best friends, two girls and one guy, tell him, say, Andrew, I just got to tell you that this is who I am. They basically revealed to him two of the girls that they were lesbian and the guy that he was gay. Three best friends that he grew up with all his life. The same best friends that he used all these words with. And they would hear that, imagine that. And they tell him this. And um, this just hit him like a ton of bricks because it made him realize this is not just an issue, this is not just a doctrine. This is not just a theme in scripture. These are people. These are people. 
These are my friends. And it struck him so much after much reflection, after much learning. Years later, he now helps bridges, bridge the bridge um, relationship between the LGBT groups and the church. He hasn't changed his view necessarily, but he's changed his posture. And he's moved in a posture of love and reconciliation. And he would affirm most of what we discovered today in the scriptures. But he's equally committed to living it out with a posture of love. He started a Bible study with uh, different people to discover who Jesus was. And one of his gay friends says, can I come? Or she was a lesbian. She said, can I come? And he says, sure, you can come. So she comes. All of a sudden, she's loving the Bible study. She brings six of her friends that are all gay and lesbian. And they're coming to this Bible study. All of a sudden, the amount of people that would, would consider themselves same sex overpowered the amount of people that were heterosexual. And the heterosexuals left. And he's there leading the Bible study, loving these friends, learning about Jesus. And he learned so much in this experience. And it's, it's continued as a life journey for him. And I'm going to talk about him a little bit more next week. But that's challenging, isn't it? Isn't it challenging? To, to, to discover a theme in Scripture and then say, how would Jesus have me respond? Man, that's another question. That's why we couldn't even deal with it today. So I want to pause just here. And I'm going to ask you to do a couple of things this week and ongoing. The first thing I'm going to ask you to do is, would you learn? I'm telling you, just, just, I didn't really want to necessarily you know, set this talk up on the calendar. But by putting it on the calendar, it forced me to learn and grow. And, and, I'm, and, and I just feel like I need to be on such a journey of learning in this. Can I encourage you to learn, to, to read, to pick up a book um, in some way? And out, here's one book, if you go to the next slide and then come back after. But this is an amazing book called People to be Loved. And, um, and I encourage you to maybe pick up a book like that or Andrew Marin's book. But one thing, can, you, can we start off by saying, hey, I want to learn. Let's go back. I want to learn. So that might take reading. It might take exploring. It might take research. And then when I say this, I mean, can we listen? Do you have an LGBT friend? Listen to them. Learn from them. Don't even consider sharing any of your opinions. Just say, hey, I want to talk. I want to hear your story. I want to hear about your life. I want to hear about your questions. So listen. And then lastly, I would say another kind of listen is prayer. We read Romans 2 verse 1. How would we pause this week and say, Lord, what do you want to teach me? Lord, what do you want to show me? Um, Where have I detoured from your purposes for me? Where have I judged others but haven't allowed you to hold me accountable? I think if we start just in this way, um, we might discover a third way of, of how to Try and honestly embrace the scriptures and honestly live out the love of Jesus. And I'll leave you hanging. We'll continue that next week. Let's stand and pray. Father, it's, it's, it's hard even to know where, how to begin to pray. God, we obviously want to be a people who honestly welcome 
the scripture's voice in our lives. Help us to be honest about that. Help us to pursue your word and your words and your voice in our lives. But God, we also just consider this broad topic of sexuality. And I know that even some here, people today maybe are feeling the effects of brokenness in their own lives. And you tell us that you are a healer, a reconciler, a hope giver, that you want to lead us to abundant living. And so I pray for everyone in this room that they would pursue you and welcome your love and healing in their lives in any way that they've experienced brokenness sexually. Whether it's choices they've made or things that have been done to them, God, they are your image bearers and you love them. and You love us. Help us to see the greater beauty of sexuality and help us to pursue an understanding of that. God, we, we want to be mindful of the boundaries as well. And then as a result, live as a community. This next week or two, we just want to take a posture of learning, a posture of openness, a posture of welcome to what you want to teach us. How you want us to live in love like Jesus. And so we ask you from now as we think about next week as we come back together. Lead us by your spirit and what that means in tangible, practical, practical ways. God, I pray for our, our friends and brothers and sisters here today that maybe there's a couple or a few here that, that would say that they um, have same-sex attraction. And I, I lift them up to you because you love them just the same. And I pray that you would uh, meet the desires of their heart to know you deeply and to follow Jesus. God, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.